You are listening to Hightuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haik Minasyan, and we're just a couple of Armenians talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world. Welcome, Daniel. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, I want to say I've always wanted to be an academic, a historian, studying at university, studying in Paris. I knew you were there recently, right, a few months ago. So I'm very jealous of your academic studies at UCLA. You're doing a PhD, um, and the PhD dissertation is called Church of Armenia, Church of Rome, Faith, Print, and Power in Ottoman Armenian History, 1688 to 1717. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Thank you for being here. I'm excited to do this. Um, also, very niche, very focused topic. Um, how did you get exposed to this topic? What's the inception story of this? The inception story has to do with a lecture I was listening to. So I should I should say first like that uh, when one starts a PhD, um, someone's affiliated with a professor, a particular professor in a department. So at UCLA, we have a few professors who do Armenian things in mm-hmm. the history department, which is my department. There is Sebu Aslanyan, who love teaches... Him. He's uh, the best. Yeah, I love that guy. He, uh, he teaches um, Armenian history, let's say roughly 1600 to 1800, something like that. And so at one point, Sebu Aslanyan was giving a lecture, and often after his lectures, we would talk about what he was discussing or about the field of Armenian studies, different things. And sometimes he would ask whether I was interested in working on a particular topic that he had brought up for my dissertation. Because I know he's very focused on Western Armenia specifically, correct? Or is it, it could be anything? His primary area of focus is those Armenians who moved from the Caucasus to Iran around the year 1600, mm. uh, New Jufa, and then who became the main actors in these uh, merchant communities that stretch from, like, let's say, London to the Cal- Philippines. Cal- that's how I know him is through the, the merchant stuff. That that's makes right. sense. Okay. Uh, and so, hi, I should say, so some of his research does cover Western Armenians. It does, uh, but it's not really the bread and butter of what he does. Got it. Well, so then he uh, he proposed this kind of era to you, and you were like, this could be very interesting. Uh, how, you know, how did you get started, or how, when you know when did you know that okay, this is going to be it. This is what I'm going to study for the next what five years, how, however long it's been. <laughs> uh, a history PhD normally takes six to eight years. Jesus. So I'm halfway through my sixth year now. It looks like I'll finish in eight. Yeah, I mean, it sounds awesome. I mean, I would love to spend that many that much time doing that. That's uh, that's great. So you're almost done. I mean, let's say you're towards the end. Um, so Daniel, before we get into this topic itself. Um, for those of us that might be interested in doing a PhD, what are some quick tips on uh, doing a successful PhD like this one? Let's say Armenian history focused. Do you need to know certain languages? Do you need to, you're saying know a professor, right? Work with alongside them. Does the school need to have, I guess, an Armenian studies program? What would you say? The school itself doesn't have to have an Armenian studies program, no. Very often, people who decide to do to write a PhD dissertation, which is a book. Um, Mm -hmm. At the end of your dissertation, you have the text of a book, you receive your PhD degree, and then after you go out and you try to find a publisher to publish it. But for all intents and purposes, the dissertation is a book. So many people who write books on Armenian topics do so under the supervision of a professor of Armenian history or anthropology, Mm -hmm. literature, what have you. That doesn't have to be the case, though. Um, In answer to your question more generally, 
it's a good idea, I think, to do a master's first, but not everyone, everybody does. Many people do their, receive a bachelor's degree and then they go right into a PhD after. But if you have a master's, it increases the chances of being accepted. And it also puts you in a better position of knowing whether you want to spend the next 68 years mm-hmm. doing a particular thing. So, yeah, you write to a professor, you say what sorts of things you're interested in. Of course, one ought to look into the research of the professor, him or herself, to see what their areas of expertise are, right. and then to see if there can be overlap. And then you kind of have a conversation. Some professors prefer for the conversation to be short. They say, yeah, that sounds good. Apply good luck. Uh, other times they want to have a longer back and forth. Depends on the style of the person. I got you. And how, how many ling- did you have to learn Karapar for the work that you did, the ancient, you know, the old Armenian, classical Armenian? Yeah, Kurapar, classical Armenian, um, which is used today only as the language of uh, the Armenian Apostolic Church. In the, particularly in the um, PhD programs in in Armenian studies at UCLA, so there's Sebu Astanian, who uh, one can study with, and there's also Peter Cowie, who's in a different Mm -hmm. department. If you want to study with one of these two individuals, then yeah, you have to learn Kurapar. Nice. Uh, Usually people don't come in with that background, they study at UCLA. But this is not the case in all universities. In fact, UCLA is one of the few universities that has uh, Kurapar courses available. And especially where you're studying uh, Armenian church history, it's definitely going to come very in handy. So like in your uh, the, the title of your dissertation, Church of Armenia, Church of Rome, uh, you know, you're talking about these two institutions, these Christian institutions um, and their relationship to each other in this certain time period. But I'm curious to how these two institutions kind of developed independently and then how they also, you know, started first, you know, coming in contact or started to uh, uh, be exposed to each other once again. Sure. So this is a long history, so I'll give it in very broad strokes with approximate dates and so on, mm-hmm. but enough to have an idea of what you're talking about. And also I'll say in order to make it clear that churches sort of come from somewhere and then they don't have a distinct form and then eventually they become institutionalized with their own hierarchies and buildings and yeah. uh, leadership. So to start outside of Armenia, let's say Jesus is born around the year one. He is a Jew who wants to continue in the tradition of Judaism. He has particular teachings. Certain people around him follow his teachings. Others don't. One or two hundred years pass, and you have a situation in which Judaism is continuing as its own religion, and we have this new thing that becomes Christianity. Right. Groups of Christians over time are spreading across the world, especially North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, Armenia. Yeah. For political reasons, for geographic reasons, for cultural reasons, particular groups come together and clump together, and they have their own leaders, and these become eventually churches. Makes sense. In the case of Armenia, we know that there either were or must have been Christian individuals in on the Armenian plateau before the year 300. Right. But the key date, traditionally 301, historically, much more likely 314. I've heard that, yeah. This is when the king of Greater Armenia, called Durtad, converts to Christianity himself, and along with him, certain other nobles. It wasn't the state that adopted it altogether, or it was just the nobility and the the let's and the king's family that I you know I always looked at it. The difference is like here's a state adopting the religion itself instead of just the the citizens becoming Christian. It depends on where you want to put the emphasis because it's very important that the king, who is the uh, prime leader uh, of the kingdom, Dertad, converts and says that others should convert as well. This is very important. But 
It's also a fact that not all of the noble houses around him convert. Uh, they don't. We know that for the next 100 or 200 years, there are still Zoroastrian Armenian princes. Right, some nobles that stick to their old, you know, their old ways, let's say. They're not about the new ways, you know. Exactly. Sense, yeah. And also among the populace, there are people who convert and people who don't. And we know from the early Armenian authors themselves who write about how they use both the carrot and the stick in order right. to make Armenian individuals convert. Right. There could always be that isolated village somewhere that just stuck, you know, th th wasn't exposed as earlier on, and they stuck in, uh, they were Zoroastrian a little longer than the other, let's say, two. Sure, uh, or that needed to reasons, be, right? oh. or that needed to be prodded along by the destruction of its temple right, and right, the right, massacring right. or exiling and, of its and, ma and, guy and build a church on top of their old temple, whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you have that, but also, I mean, there is no reason to doubt that there are many people who like this new religion. Yeah. But the point is that by, let's say, 500, it's possible to say that Armenians, you know, what can we say, at least culturally, as a majority, uh, are, are Armenian. They become a Christian people by 500. This we can yeah. say, I think, for sure. Okay. And so would you say the... I don't know, the Crusades would be the first time we're seeing like uh, this Roman Catholicism, you know, over the hundreds of years of it developing into what we know of it today. Would that be, let's say, the first time we're kind of getting exposed to each other uh, when the, you know, the they said those Crusades come east, you know, and then we come in contact with them in Gilikia and maybe other places. Is that the first time we're you know, getting in touch with them. In a meaningful way, yes. Okay. I say meaningful way because it's possible that someone knows of individual connections, but meaningfully, yes. You Institutionally, have, maybe. Right. Um, yes. Uh, Giligia in the uh, northeastern Mediterranean, you have Armenians who are settled there. They have a kingdom. There are also these crusader states, like you mentioned. And then, for sure, we have many Catholic um, priests and Armenian apostolic priests who are talking together and there is all sorts of debates and compromise and differences right. of opinion about it. My friend just went to the Vatican actually and she saw a, a marble Khachkar uh, gifted to the papacy from 1246. So already at that period you're seeing, you know, maybe like an Ar Armenian nobleman or uh, someone from in that region, you know, gifting something to Rome. Um, and I do know that uh, Armenian kings were trying to lobby Rome to like help support them against, you know, whether it's the Seljuks or the Mongols or whoever it was. Um, as well as like those early, there's so many people might not know, but there were Eastern European diasporas, like everywhere from Hungary, Romania to uh, Ukraine and uh, Poland. Uh, a lot of Armenians had moved there once the Seljuks first came and destroyed Ani. And uh, and those Armenians were also exposed to Catholicism earlier on. Sometimes they also had the carrot and stick issue with their no, the, the Polish king or this and that. And they had to convert to Catholicism. Um, and I think we mentioned this in our Nachichevan episode uh, briefly, but there were a handful of uh, Catholic like villages in Nachichevan. That's right. The Dominican friars or something like that went there. But these are not the the Catholic Armenian Church. These are just Roman Catholics in Armenia, right? Right. Um, the Armenian Catholic Church that we have today is established in the 1740s. Comes a lot later on. That's right. I got you. So. Um, all right. Well, so then, could you then kind of describe now the 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 setting of the period that you study? Like, what's going on in the world? Where are, what's the Armenian world look like in the late 1600s, early 1700s? Sure. A really important thing happens around 1600, which is that there are a series of rebellions in Western Armenia, and there is also the invasion of uh, Shah Abbas on the Iranian side and an Ottoman sultan on the Ottoman side into the Caucasus. Even the Russians are coming up maybe a hundred or so years later, but yes, yeah. And these events push Armenians out of 
um, Eastern and Western Armenia. Um, part of them going to Iran, and then that becomes a whole different story that um, yeah. we're not going to talk about yeah. today, I think. Yeah, I wish. And uh, those in Western Armenia are pushed either a bit further westward or a lot further westward. So a place like uh, Sivas, Sepastia, uh, Gesaria, Kayseri, Ankara, I don't know whether they had some Armenians or not, but now they have more. Yeah. Istanbul had Armenians before, but now it has way more. Tekirdağ beside Istanbul, way more Armenians. So different parts things, of the Ottoman Empire, right? Because I mean, right. I guess they can migrate to different parts, and that's where we see, like in the when Armenian genocide happened, there were Armenians all along those cities. Yeah all the way on like the Greek coasts and stuff so that That's would make right. sense so there was a lot of warfare going on in the Armenian homeland and it pushed a lot of Armenians to, away from the the war zone essentially that's right yes okay. um, and uh, and here I should say that very recently there have been um, two individuals who have been drawing our attention to this fact uh, Henry Shapiro Sebu Aslanian both of them have books that either have just come out or will come out really soon it's not that we didn't know about these things Haig but sometimes it happens in the profession of history when someone puts their finger right on an issue and spends a lot of time writing about it and thinking about it, and then you come to realize something that was always there under the surface. Right. You start seeing all the different, yeah, all, all the things on the side. That's usually how discoveries are usually made anyways. Uh, you know, you, you uncover a new tomb, and something small in that room can end up, you know, meaning a lot more to history than we can imagine. So, uh the 16 in the 1600s you're seeing a lot more armenians move to the coastal cities to the west of let's say more west right uh would you say that that means they're also a little bit more western thinking or that that western thinking started to become more prominent maybe because they're becoming more exposed to european markets or european thoughts do you see that shift as well in the people moving there uh, uh not a western alignment but like a maybe that connection is kind of building something i can't I don't see that specifically put in that way, but something similar, and this might be what you're um, asking about, uh, is I think less because of the presence of Armenians in, for instance, Istanbul and Smyrna and so on, but more because of the presence of Western European missionaries in the Ottoman Empire. There some Western thing comes in from the outside that wasn't quite there before. Uh, were there was there a presence of a lot of Western missionaries, Catholic missionaries within the Ottoman Empire around this time? Do we see an in increase around this time? In 1688, I think something important happens. It's it's clear that in 1688 something important does happen. I'm not sure whether there is a numerical increase in the number of missionaries, but a kind of key event that takes place is that Jesuit missionaries, so the Jesuits are a particular group of um, Catholic priests yeah. who focus on education and on spreading Christianity in their minds, yeah. um, Catholicism, let's say, in our case, as a specific brand of Christianity to many parts of the world, the Americas, India, China, including then throughout the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. So in Erzurum and Garin, um, they set up a mission, and so they start proselytizing, uh, talking yeah. to people about Christianity and Catholicism. And the Armenian church locally and the Ottoman government locally clamps down on this missionary activity. And that ends up setting off a chain reaction of events. What happens in the following decades. Right. I mean, this wasn't the first mission, or would, it, would you consider it like something new and unprecedented, or was this just a uh, something that was just too close to home or too too large of, on scale? What was the difference between this and maybe like previous attempts? I mean, if you could answer that. 
That's a great question that I hadn't thought of, but now I know what to think of it for my dissertation. Perfect. Okay, good to know. <laughs> but um, so I'm I'm curious because this is what the discussion is going to be mostly about: is this relationship and this kind of a um, you know the perspectives of either side on you know one invade you could say like invading one other's space, right? Um, whether that's the Ottoman government, um, you know, and, and Western influence or the Armenian Church within their own area. I mean, I'm personally always uh, dumbfounded that. Um, Western missionaries always went to convert other Christians and not the Muslim population, which is weird to me, but that's another conversation to have. Um, but, uh. Well, it's but, not altogether different. Yeah. Um, I mean, just briefly, I think that Jesuit missionaries, uh, so in the 1600s, same as, for instance, American Protestant missionaries in the 1800s, they do want to convert Muslims. But for different reasons, they don't find success. Not least, I think, because there is a higher bar for a Muslim in the Ottoman Empire to jump in order to become Christian, which is that for an Armenian Christian to become Catholic is not legally a crime, according to for, Islamic law. But it is for a Muslim to convert to, yeah, to change exactly. their religion. And that technically is uh, punishable by death. And an Ottoman Muslim is, is you know, putting themselves into the second class by doing that. Like they're, they're putting themselves lower in the hierarchy just by choosing that new religion. You know, for Armenians, it might not make that big of a difference there, right? It's true. It's true. Here I should say um, it's important, I think, not to like exaggerate the second class status of non-Muslims. And I say exaggerate and I mean that word. So it's clear that to be Muslim is easier in the Ottoman Empire without a doubt. And yeah. Ottoman law does discriminate against non-Muslims. It does. But the thing that I want to clarify is that it's not true that there is a centuries-long process of planned annihilation of always seeking to massacre Christians and make them, force them always to embrace Islam. It's it's not at that level. No, there was a period with around this time that Armenian merchants were doing a great, like they they were doing a great job. Honestly, I always joke around and say whenever Armenians didn't have to worry about administration or war, we do great. We we kill it, you know, whether it's business or uh, even spiritual matters. But um, there was a period, like I'd even call it like the late Renaissance or a golden age of Armenian Armenian life out there, you know. But um, well, speaking of like a golden age, and we'll get back into kind of this relationship and uh, you know them uh, the Armenian church and the church of rome and uh their experience with each other but uh there was something that came out of this era from what i was reading 1700 the mukhitarist order was created a lot of, a lot of people might know who the mukhitarist order were but could you kind of a, you know give us a brief the definition or not definition but summary on who they were sure so there's this um boy manug who's born in sivas sebastian mm-hmm. um according to his Biography, which is always interestingly, this is uh, Peter Cowie who had pointed out to me, all of the biographies of Mukhitar are written by Mukhitar's priests. I was going to, oh, okay, okay. So we have a lack of a critical perspective. At the same time, Hike, Mukhitar's priests have published Mukhitar's letters that he wrote, of course, as an adult, not as a child. And it's clear that this is a person who is so careful and caring and meticulous and serious and hardworking. What I want to say is that it would be nice to have a critical biography of this important figure, but I don't think that the critical biography is going to completely overturn everything make a difference that we because, know about him. Because the impact that mm. he had and the influence that he was able to make over the Europeans, I mean, that speaks for itself, right? Like, he didn't have any help. He made that happen, and it speaks to, the, like, you know, he's probably a pretty uh, amazing person uh, just, you know, from his own abilities. So, but yeah, tell, tell us about the order, though, this Mokhitarist order. Sure. So this kid, Manuk, who becomes eventually ordained as a priest and takes the name Mukhitar. 
His biographies describe him as an individual who is very pious. He wants to be close to God. Uh, he gives importance to the mother of God, um, Mary, praise to her, and so on. He's also very curious and very serious. He has deep questions about life, about Christianity. And he finds consistently that the Armenian priests around him aren't able to answer his difficult, nitty-gritty, perhaps technical questions. Interesting. In his search for answers, he meets some Western European, I'm not sure from which country in particular, perhaps France, but I'm not sure, uh, priests, missionaries in Aleppo, in mm -hmm. Ottoman Syria. And there they uh, tell him that, yes, in fact, I mean, he can receive answers to these questions. They answer the questions. They gave him a book and so on. And he gets it in his mind that on the one hand, the Armenian church is a very important institution that he doesn't want to leave. He's ordained in the Armenian church. Yeah. At the same time, he sees that there is an extreme level of knowledge in Western Europe. Yeah. And what he wants to do is he wants to be the bridge that connects these two intellectual and cultural worlds. Maybe in an attempt to enrich the Armenian church as well, right? Like at this point, he wasn't thinking, I'm going to become a Catholic or something, right? At this point, would you say he was still looking to just be that bridge? He wants to be the bridge, and he's in a difficult position, and his order remains in a difficult position for centuries and uh, for decades and maybe even a couple hundred years thereafter, which is that there are those who look at the Mukhitarists who are in between Armenian and Catholic and say, look, you can't do this. You have to pick a side. Mm -hmm. And then there are the Mukhitarists themselves who say, look, we're both members of the Armenian church in the sense that we are doing things in Armenian and we are ourselves Armenian and we recognize the importance of the Gatoregos in Etchmiadzin, but at the same time, we also recognize the authority of the Pope in Rome. Mm. Institutionally, the Mechitarists are a Catholic order. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But for some people, they're too much in the gray zone. For some Catholics, they're too much in the gray zone. So Mechitar, yes, in 1701, he founds his order with a couple of followers in Istanbul. They're pushed out by um, anti-Catholic Armenian priests. Mm. They move to Greece. Unfortunately, Greece is invaded. They move to Venice and they settle permanently in Venice in 1717. They grow in Venice. They split up during the 1700s. And so now there is a branch in Venice and a branch in Vienna that I think a few decades ago um, merged officially. So oh, now really? there is one congregation, but still with these two branches. I've been to both. I've, I've studied Western Armenian at the at San Lazaro degli de Armeni, San Lazar uh, Island in, in Venice. Venice. Yeah, there's a program there my mom did back in the 80s. It's called the Padis Araxes program. I, I recommend it to anybody who wants to go refresh their Armenian and live in Venice for a few weeks. I also got the chance to go check out the monastery in Venice too. I mean, they're beautiful sites and there's museums there. It's, it's amazing the, the the stuff that they were able to retain and keep in, uh, and the, the church there is beautiful. So um, the, the the Armenian heritage in Venice is amazing, and most of it's attested to this Mukhitarist order. And I mean, uh, the Mukhit, I don't know if mo most people would know, but the Mukhitarist order did you know create a foundation for you know a lot of the I don't want to say revolutionaries, but a lot of the political identity nationalism that came about the next few hundred years. They were instrumental in that, correct? Without a doubt, there is. It's impossible to imagine subsequent Armenian history, let's say Armenian history in 1915, 1914, before the genocide, after genocide, I don't know. But it's impossible to think of uh, Armenian history around 1900, let's say, without thinking about the legacy of the Mokhitaris congregation. Mm -hmm. Because they looked at Armenians as a divided people speaking different languages, living in different parts of the world, and wanted to reach them 
for missionary reasons, for spiritual reasons, I mean. Um, so they did secular work. They did uh, non-religious work. Mm-hmm. But they also, very importantly, did religious work. They were priests. Yeah. Um, and part of their non-religious work was to show Armenians Armenian history, to publish texts that had been left in manuscript, publish meaning print them in books and hundreds of copies and to send them out, um, to they, work. They created the first printing press, no, or like the first Armenian printing press, you could say, right? Uh, no, we can't no, say okay. that. Okay. <laughs> They're extremely important Armenian printers, without a doubt, but but they didn't create the first printing uh, press. Not, no. the, not the first printing press, mm. but the first Armenian book. No, I think it was in Amsterdam, wasn't it? I think there was something like that. Uh, the yeah. first Armenian book is uh, published in 1512 or 1513 in Venice. Oh, I thought it was Amsterdam. And then from there until 1660, uh, books are printed in different parts of um, Europe, either mostly or completely, uh, in sort of small numbers in disparate ways. And then in 1660, Armenian printing really takes off. And maybe around 1700 or 1720, the Mukhitarists um, participate in that full force. That makes sense. Well, so back to Mukhitar's origin story about him looking for more answers, looking for more maybe uh, Western education, Western, uh, you know, the knowledge that maybe the, the Catholic Church had. I mean, was this a trend you saw or we see with a lot of the Armenians who were converting to Catholicism or even the priests themselves? They similarly looking for more uh, answers that the, the, the Roman Catholic Church had. Is that a theme? I think so. This is something that I'm honing in on as I continue my research, and I don't have a lot of evidence for it. But, you know, historians sometimes look at evidence and they realize something, and sometimes they have suspicions, and they hunt based on those suspicions. So this is one of my suspicions. I bet that there were also other men like Mukhitar who were looking for answers, couldn't find those answers in the Armenian church, and so then went to places like Rome, for instance, in order to study, because there were these terrific academies, Roman Catholic academies in Rome for priests. Um, and the Armenian church at this point didn't have either those or didn't have enough of those. Let's say at the very least that they didn't have enough of those. Because I'm interested because... I'm interested because uh, historically, I mean, uh, I don't know, we've been in communication, let's say, maybe not that close of communication, but the churches have, you know, have have been in contact. They knew about each other. They were sending gifts to each other, let's say. Um, I mean... uh, why was there a lack of opportunities for these, uh, maybe like, let's say, theologians in Armenia to learn just from the Armenian books? There's obviously like a lot of richness and a lot of uh, texts and manuscripts and a lot of smart people within the Armenian Apostolic Church. Why did they feel a lack of? I think that there are two or three things happening. One was that there had been warfare in um, right. the Armenian highland for a long time. And that had resulted in the destruction of manuscripts and the loss of maybe institutional continuity in particular monasteries that had been very impressive, yeah. but at that time weren't anymore. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, and in some cases, they would become again later. In Bitlis and Parish, for instance, there is a, a revival in that monastic community around 1700 or 1710s. I'm not sure exactly. But so that's one. And another thing is that in Western Armenia itself, and also in Eastern Armenia, when one talks to an Armenian clergyman, one can talk to all kinds of Armenian clergymen, including, for instance, a parish priest who doesn't have very much learning. Or one can happen to catch or to reach a Vartabit, which is a priest who is celibate and who has um, permission to preach and to teach. There's a certain designation, like a doctoral degree, let's say, or a bishop even higher yet. But what I'm saying is that you weren't guaranteed to get a very knowledgeable person who would be able to answer your technical questions. The difference with the Roman Catholic Church is not that all Roman Catholic priests 
are uh, doctorates or above, but rather that the missionaries who are being sent are like the creme de la creme. They're the cream of the crop, yeah. right? They're the ones who are prepared to debate with local priests, to convince local uh, lay see. people, to convince local priests, and so on. So there is this uh, mismatch. I get that. No, that that totally makes sense. I mean, you could see yourself as a villager there in your local village, and your priest is great. You love your priest, but you know he didn't study at the Vatican or the Etchmiadzi. You know, uh, he might have studied at the local monastery. I mean, I, I, I'm curious. I mean, so if it sounds like even if you if you were a clergyman, if you were a monk, I mean, even at your local monastery, it it might still not have been sufficient enough, especially if you had a very cu- curious mind like Mukhitad. Um can you read us an example from an old text or document you've analyzed about these missionaries, you know, to help paint a picture for us? Sure. So I'll read from a text that's currently stored in Lebanon in a monastery in a place called uh, Zammar. Uh, this is an incomplete text, but very long in the version that has survived. Uh, it's written in classical Armenian which is the variety of Armenian that a lot of Armenian writing is done in up until the mid, early or mid 1800s. And uh, I'll read some of the original to show you the contents and to give you a sense of the language that this kind of historical work um, involves. And then I'll paraphrase in English. So here we go. Desek yachpark zais khradagan Zorbatmem tsez pan khakhkutyan Charik avurus aismer yegan zor amenekyan achok desan Er tvagan hayots merain hazar harur hisun liman tiv miail havel iveran yev takavoran sultan mustafan Yelmer michen khachuratsen ein zor knatsial ifrangistan yev gatsial ant itbradan Raman Aryal Karozutian Yegyal Karak Mer Gostantian Kedav Pazumk Yurian Havan Yur Heshtalur Karozutian Amenekian Moloretsan Sud Vartabedek Isuin Haryan Char Kahanaik Heshtaperan Karozelov Hadris Martgan Sedein Zorenus Lusavorchian Asen Chebard Arnel Hurban Zivoch Uden Merialken sein Inchah Lini Hokvots Notzain Vorgentanikan Uden sein Ailev Avotk Zenlatragan Asen Hamorterek Hamain Vochkidek Tuk Zurir Tavan Ail Charcharik An Panagan Zormisht Gain Nerhagagan Hossein Panas Hagaragan Vijain Sagas Yerg Penutian, Tetseren Che Urirtavan. Ail Notsunz Pan Jeshmardutian, Karozetsin Ilur Martgan. Temolor Ask Hayotsnaman, Vochkadani Askats Hamain. So, what this is saying is um, it starts by giving the uh, year in the Armenian calendar. And says that in this year when the Sultan was the Ottoman Sultan was uh, Mustafa, there arose among us someone called Khachurats. So Khachurats means someone who denies or renounces the cross. Uh, clearly, this is a, um, a nickname, uh, and it seems very likely, almost certain, that they're talking about this Armenian priest called uh, Khachadur Arzurumetsi 
who was from Erzurum. Um, and so it says that this guy went to Frankistan, Western Europe, and he uh, studied there and he became a Vartabed. And then he came to uh, Constantinople, Karakunmer, Gostantiain. And here he surrounded himself with people and taught them misleading things that they all fell for. They, him and other uh, false Vartabeds and uh, evil Kahanas who followed him, uh, misled uh lay people, they taught them to do things that are against the traditions of Gregory the Illuminator, they taught them uh, not to do ghurban, animal uh, slaughtering animals, animal sacrifice, uh, madagh, they taught them to pray while they're kneeling, they taught them that their Tavanank, their confessional things that they know to do, the Armenian apostolic way of doing things were wrong. And then the passage that I read ends with this accusation, uh, uh, Among all the nations of the world, there is no nation as lost as the Armenian nation. Well, so let's, we could go back to 1688, where you're seeing this big, uh, you know, um, emergence of more Armenian Catholic priests, or not, or Catholic Catholic priests, let's say, coming to, or Catholic missionaries coming to Western Armenia, because they arrested that one priest. You're saying like that set off something. That did set off something. Um, the story here gets there is an additional set of actors that comes onto the stage. Let's hear it. Yeah. So there is this international geopolitical dynamic to what's going on around 1700. It's like 1688, which is that there is naturally a French embassy in Constantinople in the cap in the capital. And the French ambassadors, as part of their portfolio, their set of responsibilities, they're supposed to intervene on behalf of Catholics and support the work of Catholic missionaries. And so when these Jesuit missionaries in Erzurum are pushed out, mm -hmm. Catholic, uh, French, sorry, and so uh, French diplomats are themselves Roman Catholic. That's yeah. uh, maybe perhaps obvious. Uh, yeah. So these French diplomats also become involved. So it becomes this big hullabaloo. Politics are getting into it. I, I see, I see. I mean, uh, what what do you think the uh, the motivation for uh, the Armenian, let's say, clergy, the Ottoman government, not allowing them to work in Erzurum was? What, what was their perspective like? I don't know what the situation was in Erzurum in particular. I guess in general, then. But if we were to zoom out a bit, I think that there there could have been some different fears at play. Okay. One that I haven't seen reflected in the Ottoman Armenian texts of the time yet, but that I wouldn't be surprised to see, would be a recognition of the fact that in Poland and in Hungary uh, and also in Iran, yeah. you had groups of Armenians converting to Catholicism. And in Hungary and in Poland in particular, you had thousands or tens of thousands, I don't know the number, uh, of Armenians en masse altogether becoming Catholic and the whole apostolic hierarchy becoming Catholic and joining the Catholic Church. Yes. So part of the issue could very well have been um, Armenian apostolic priests who knew about these things worrying about the same thing happening at home, which naturally they would not want. Yeah. Another thing that definitely played a role is politics and competition and greed. Yeah. Because... An interesting thing that happens is that it's not only anti-Catholic Armenian priests who are involved in pushing back against the spread of Roman Catholicism. There are also apostolic lay people who, given that they have money, use their wealth 
in order to bring particular bishops, anti-Catholic bishops, to power so that they can do anti-Catholic things. And then on the other side, Catholics with money do the same thing in reverse. So, for example, there could be an Armenian apostolic merchant who, uh, let's say his business deal relies on maybe the local Armenian church. And let's say that competition between a Catholic church and a Catholic merchant might this is where maybe the competition might be playing out between just laymen like like the the those the churches are connected to even non-church events or non-church uh trade like uh, this is what you're kind of getting at too yes interesting uh, also there is this uh funny thing that we don't see in the world anymore but that was the case in ottoman history which was that the armenian church as an institution was responsible for at least part of tax collection um collecting certain taxes from armenians let's say and so if the priest that you backed was in power, was the bishop of a particular area, then that would increase the chances, maybe guarantee, I'm not sure, but at least increase the chances that you would be assigned a tax collector for the local Armenians. And the way that a tax collector makes revenue is that they skim off the top, either right. legally or illegally. Commission, whatever, yeah. So then in this way, you have a situation in which even we can imagine someone who's not particularly interested in pro-Catholic, anti-Catholic politics backing a certain person because they have their own financial dealings. Yeah, there's middlemen all along. There's a bureaucratic system that is also kind of uh, making money from the situation, and uh, that's going to get involved. That's interesting. That that's. I mean, it makes sense that that's happening. Um, I mean, I, when I hear, uh, when I think about, okay, the, the Armenian church isn't so uh, keen on the ca- Catholics coming and converting Armenians, it's, you know, to me, I'm thinking, okay, maybe they want to preserve the Armenian identity because it's very closely attached to the Armenian church, and then they think, you know, if they become Catholic, uh, maybe they'll start losing that identity a little bit. It's possible. We can get into that. Um, so there's a little bit of that that motivation to preserve the Armenian culture and identity, part of it. Is, was that any, like, part of the motivation from your research? In the sense that for apostolics, we see this consistently. If you leave the apostolic church, you're not an Armenian. It's simple. Interesting. They say it again and again. They use this word frank. So uh, the word frank kind of means lots of things. We have it today in the word uh, French. It comes from the word frank. Yeah. Uh, and so f- since the medieval period, for lots of peoples in lots of languages in the Middle East, frank means Western European. It comes from the Crusades. Like anyone, who, any of those crusaders were considered Franks. That was a term for European. Yeah. And I, I'm not surprised that the Armenians also use that. So That's that, make, that makes sense. And so they say... Frank um, Tarnal to become Frank, Frank uh, Lashmek in uh, Turkish. Um, it's clear, anyways. I mean, this isn't, an, you know, historians sometimes do interpretation where they try to draw conclusions and sometimes they just point to things that are right there in the text. This is one of those things that's right there in the text. It's it's simple to them. Well, so uh, was that a, a you know a, a large theme back then, or maybe even earlier, that your religion really was tied with your ethnic identity? You know, because maybe at that point they saw that you know uh, maybe language wasn't the determining factor of the food you ate, but it was really what your faith. I mean, that was the consensus, huh? Uh, and interestingly, food too. So faith, you're right. Uh, more than just religion, it's your particular sect, your particular right. tradition of faith. So I mean, an apostolic as one sect, as one confessional community, as one church. Um, Language, you're totally right. It was just absolutely not a problem for people that uh, someone could be Armenian, meaning uh, what their parents had been considered Armenian and they were members of the Armenian church in some capacity and they spoke Turkish or Kurdish, no problem, no issue. It's just people just didn't think about it. Uh, But food, actually, interestingly, uh, is a marker of which church you belong to 
Interesting. Well, I, I figured Islam, and like that would make sense, right? The pork and the this and that. But but what would be the difference between the churches with food? A key difference between uh, Armenian Apostolic and Roman Catholic uh, had to do with uh, the schedule of fasts. So between the two uh, churches, you could eat different things at different points in the week or the year. Uh, and therefore, then the fasting schedule and food culture was a way in which you could easily accuse fictitiously another person of being pro-Catholic or being apostolic uh, or uh, accurately identifying them as belonging to one of the two groups. Uh, and this is something that's written about a lot at the time. It comes up again and again. Um, well, so, okay, so the it's interesting, the thought that identity was so closely tied. Okay, so Armenians are, or so the, someone who's Armenian apostolic is referring to someone who might be an Armenian Catholic as no longer Armenian, but like a Frank. But that Armenian Catholic who's being regarded as a Frank, what was their self-identity or how they perceive themselves? Did they also say, oh, I'm European now because I'm Catholic? Or were they in this in-between kind of, oh, who am I? I'm Armenian, but I'm Catholic. I think that it would have been a mix. There okay. would have been those who were in the Mukhtarist tradition, in the Mukhtarist style, for whom uh, there, this was not an issue. Uh, and there would have been others who would have wanted to leave Armenianness. Uh, I know this uh, for a fact from Jennifer Manugian's research, which comes later. So this is about the 1800s, uh, where you see for sure people converting to Roman Catholicism because for them Armenianness is low, it's peasant, it's uninteresting, it's not cosmopolitan, and that is a higher culture. It's more exciting, it's more dynamic, it's Western it's European. Western, yeah, it's cool. And yeah. it's a way out of being Armenianness. Yeah, I mean, we kind of see that stuff even today, right? Uh, the uh, Adopting Western culture is a way of feeling more modern and this and that. So that that, that would make sense. Um, uh, I mean, so there's this competition over space, you know, in in, in Armenia. And is there other certain parts of Armenia? I know we're talking, especially the, maybe the cosmopolitan cities, this is happening a lot everywhere from Constantinople to the coastal cities. But I just want to understand if there's like certain parts of Armenia that this is happening more primarily this is a great question, Hike, because a topic that historians these days of Ottoman Armenian history are sort of often have in their minds is, are we talking just about Istanbul, just about the capital, or are we talking about other places too? So in this case, uh, we're talking a lot about Istanbul, we're talking um, a bit about Edirne, a bit about Jerusalem, a bit about Bursa, a lot about uh, Erzurum, Garin, um, a bit about Sivas, and if we go outside of Western Armenia, then Echmiadzin is on the map, Nudrufa is on the map, Dikranagert in Western Armenia is uh, also a relevant place. So this seems to be an uncommon kind of event in that it covers a lot of the Western Armenian world. You know what I just re remembered? I've spent a lot of time in Javak, and the Javakis are from Erzurum, and there are a lot of Catholic Armenians in Javak. That and that must have been from that time. That Could would be. make that would make a lot of sense. Um, and so and then. To maybe refresh the, the the motivation for what was the motivation, let's say, for the the Jesuits and the Catholic missionaries, was it just purely their philosophy of expanding the religion, or was there also other kind of uh, motivations for expanding? These things are happening a few hundred years after the Reformation in Europe. So um, there is this name, Martin Luther, that listeners might know. Martin Luther is a Catholic priest, but he's one of many Catholics in Europe who is sick and tired of the corruption of the Armenian of the uh, Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Events lead one to the other, and so basically Christianity in Europe, which at least nominally initially had been under one um, institution, uh, is uh, broken up and splintered. And so one of the motivations 
uh, for the Roman Catholic Church to train missionaries and send them out is to fix the situation. Also, you have the, for Europeans, the discovery of the Americas. They're like, there are all these people here who aren't Christian. Let's get them. Um, No, you're right. The the Jesuits came about this because the Reformation was demanding of the Catholic Church to like kind of uh, reform and rethink and get more, uh, let's say, intellectual about their stuff. That's how the Jesuit uh, uh, thing, um, the Jesuit school kind of came about. And so now they have these schools that are pumping out all these uh, intellectual and, uh, you know, uh, staunch missionaries. And uh, and I feel like maybe since they had this surplus, you know, they're kind of being sent everywhere. I was curious if the European nations had some sort of like a agenda behind it as well. You know, like maybe they can gain more influence in the East. You know, the trade routes were a big thing. Um, I mean, did you notice anything like that in terms of a pl- on the political end? I've, I know that for sure one of the motivating factors for the Ottoman government to get involved. Actually, this is a more of an argument, let's say, yeah, in the book, is that. There is evidence to suggest that the Ottoman government, whereas previously it had been indifferent to the conversion of one kind of Christian to another kind of Christianity, at this point saw that Western European states were using Catholicism in order to gain followers, so that they could use that, to, they could insert that as a throne in the side of the Ottoman, uh, a thorn in the side of the Ottoman government, use it to get concessions, use it to stir up trouble when they wanted to, and so on. And so there is at least a bit of that, perhaps even a lot of that. There is at one point war in the Balkans, for instance, mm-hmm. um, during which uh, Venice, if I'm not mistaken, encourages local Catholics. So Balkans, this is outside of Armenian history, right? right. But it's in the Ottoman Empire, uh, encourages local Catholics to rise up against the Ottoman military, mm-hmm. um, their own uh, government, so to speak. Uh, and they do that. And so... Could the Ottoman government have had the same worries about Armenians and also about other peoples who are going to Catholicism? Can be. Well, what was the Ottoman government's take on all this? I mean, did they just care about you know who paid them at the end, or did they were they also weary of these Western missionaries like the Armenian Church? Were they on the same side? They're definitely on the same side. This is one of the things that makes the project um, interesting to me, which is that if you think about Western Armenian history from a distance, you see the genocide. And it's uh, clear, Ottoman government on one side, Armenians on the other side. But if you read just slightly deeply, there is this patriarch called Marke Ormanian who publishes a huge um, history, an Armenian history. And he writes about these things copiously. And it's clear that the norm for Western Armenian history is cooperation between our high-ranking, at least, Armenian churchmen and Ottoman officials. Is that the only thing that happens? No. But is there a lot of it? Yes. Is it yeah. normal? Yes. Should we expect it? Yes. Yeah. So in this case, uh, they work together consistently. One of the things is geopolitics, um, where uh, different states are competing in the Eastern Mediterranean. And so I think that uh, confession style of Christianity becomes politically significant. And then money is also a factor. There is this tradition in um, all across Europe and Asia Uh, And it goes up and down in particular places at this point in the Ottoman Empire for sure, where when you gain high office, you're supposed to give gifts to your superior and to their hangers on. Uh, this is not only a thing that Armenians do, uh, all sorts of people Every do, and all sorts do, yeah. of other. That's right. Yeah. These are called like uh, gifts of honor. It's part of paying respect. Homage. I don't know if it's homage, but yeah. And when someone becomes a bishop, um, an Armenian bishop in the Ottoman Empire, or when someone mm-hmm. becomes a kind of super bishop called the Patriarch in Istanbul or in Jerusalem, you have to pay the same kind of um, gifts. You have to give the same kind of gifts. 
If you have a situation hike wherein there is local competition among Armenians and one side is willing to pay the fees of the other, uh, pay the fees of their candidate and paying you off so that you dethrone one patriarch and put another in their place, it's like cash money is flowing in. Yeah. So that's undoubtedly another factor that keeps the situation messy for a long time. Interesting. I mean, I was curious if this competition between the two, the Roman, the Church of Rome and the Church of Vechmiadzin, had any also benefits or anything positive come out of this? Did you find anything like that in your research? Or what would you say? There is this principle in the study of um, church competition like this, which is that when one church accuses another of being wrong, being heretical, for instance, so believing the wrong things, having the wrong um, churchly teachings, the side that's accused, as they give their counter-argument, they also hone their own arguments and they improve themselves so that they can defend themselves. Right, just kind of like the Reformation, or like like we were talking about with the Protestantism, and then the Catholic Church had to you know reform and rethink and you know uh, improve on themselves so that they could win back their uh, lost territory, for example. So yeah, I could see it. whenever you're kind of when you don't have let's say an external threat, quote unquote, you can become complacent and maybe more lazy, and maybe that was actually the lack of in the first place, right? Um, and and this competition helped revamp. Maybe the the Armenian liturg- uh, you know, uh, the Armenian Church and uh, the way they had to, you know, how are we going to keep our people, you know, to ourselves? Oh, we got to be better. You know, we got to improve ourselves. We got to think of new ways. So that's that makes sense. That's it. You also see it in the domain of books, where particular styles of book that had been um, developed outside of Armenian circles, so in Western Europe, are translated into Armenian for the use of Catholics. Um, Catholics and potential Catholics and then apostolics also start writing the same kinds of books because they're successful because they like those kinds of books and they figure that it'll be useful to apostolics too both in a competitive uh, dynamic and also outside of competition they just figure this is a good thing to give um, our congregants very interesting um Okay, well, I mean, you kind of mentioned a few times why you are interested in this era, but, you know, could you give us maybe like one of your favorite things about why you're so interested in how you can spend so much time on this era, particularly like what's what's what what do you gravitate to so much? Early on, you asked me, how did I come to this topic? And I mentioned the lecture and so on. So the particular uh, story that was mentioned during that lecture was the story of uh, Avedik Tohatetzi. Mm-hmm. So Avedik is an Armenian apostolic bishop. And in short, um, what I heard during that, that, that lesson uh, was the story of how this Armenian bishop was anti-Catholic and a French diplomat, a French ambassador, organizes his abduction. So he's secretly kidnapped and sent away and put in prison in different parts of Europe, including in the famous prison of the Bastille, which is famous. In Paris, yeah, in Bastille. Bastille Day or, you know, everything, the, the destruction of the Bastille. Oh, he was there, huh? And so he's there. So this guy's story, Avedik Tukhatetzi, just keeps me going. And there, there are texts. He writes an autobiography, so you get to hear his story in his own Avedik. words. Like while That's he was right. in jail, he wrote a story about it. Oh, so, and we have that? That's right. Oh, my God. That's right. Uh, you've been able to read that personally? Yeah, the language is kind of, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it's not the easiest thing. It's a mix of what today we would say like Karapaj and Western Armenian and Turkish. Interesting. So he writes it in his um, in his own vernacular. It's long. It's um, maybe 30 pages or something if you type it out. Uh, it's uh, Right now it's, it's in an archive in France. So when he was eventually transferred to the Bastille, there were French officials who kind of had lost track of his story 
who is this guy exactly and how did he exactly end up here and what do we do with him now? So they ask him to tell his life story and then they say, okay, write it down. And he does and so that's what we oh, have. Interesting. And then there are also texts that are pro-Avedic and anti-Avedic. So there is one that's pro-Avedic, I think, in Lebanon, which is online. So I've read like the online scanned version that's in Karabar. And then there's another one that's virulently anti-Avedic, which is a very fun <laughs> text. That one's in Germany, also scanned online. I mean, what this could they? What, I mean, what could they be saying? Neg- so negatively, was it like, oh, he was such a, a mean guy in Constantinople, he deserved what he got? Was it that kind of stuff? I mean, how bad could it be? How bad could Avedic even be? They, <laughs> Pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, they 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 say terrible, insulting things about him. They describe him as a Judas, as someone who oh, um, has people thrown in uh, jail, which he did. Uh, they compare him to a rabid dog. Um, and then there's also more colorful language. I bet. Isn't that funny, though? It's like he threw people in jail, but we threw him in jail. <laughs> like, what does that say? I, like I said in the beginning, you were in France, and, you know, I, have a, I had a number of friends who were studying. Were you in the uh, Maison d'Armenie? I was. Yeah, yeah there's like an Armenian house there. I think actually in our episode with Ardashes Kasachian, he mentions this uh, Armenian house uh, where a bunch of Armenian academics could live together. One, that's super cool that you got to do that. I'm, again, very jealous of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, what else was unique about what you got to learn there? Uh, what, what, you know, what was the goal? Was it just for this Avedic book or were there other things that you were able to learn there? No, it was for the dissertation itself. Um, so Avedic is um, a very important part of the story, but there's some stuff that happens concurrently with his life and before him and after him. But all things connected to the conversation we're having now. Well, I guess you were saying a lot of French diplomats and a lot of French uh, this and that were involved. So were you able to find that research there as well? Yeah, the uh, French Foreign Ministry has an archive. That's um, a wonderful place to work. It's open to researchers. So um, I spent a lot of time there. There is a national archive, which is a separate institution. There is a national library, the Bibliothèque Nationale. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the one of the groups of French missionaries, they belong to um, an order uh, called the Capuchins. So the Capuchin Monastery in Paris has the old records uh, from Constantinople. And they're open to you? Like you're able to go? That's right. That's so all the these places are open. The Capuchin collection is... So when one is doing research, uh, sometimes one um, ends up working in archives that are professional, solid hours. You look online, whatever it says there, that's the reality. Some archives are... Um, are uh, personal or closed or semi-closed. So the Capuchin Archive, for instance, they say very clearly, and, and, and it's fair, this is a private collection that we're opening to researchers as long as we're able to. And so you go and you work comfortably. Were there other places you were able to research? Was it mostly like online in France? I mean, have you been to the Mokhitaris Monastery to look there yet? I haven't been to the Mokhitaris Monastery, no. Um, I, I know for a fact they probably have a lot of stuff, but like I don't know how much is available, right? Because I'm sure every monastery or every library is some things they want to... I mean, you can't go to the papacy and like see everything that Rome has, you know? That's true, you yeah. can't. But some institutions are more open than others. Mukhtaris aren't that... The, the, the Mukhtaris are not an open institution, <laughs> no. They're secret society. Uh, at They're least the one in Venice. Uh, wonderfully, the Mukhtaris congregation, uh, the Mukhtaris branch in uh, Vienna. Vienna recently launched a website where they've put their uh, amazing newspaper collection online, for oh, nice. instance, which is which is terrific. Um, but where else? I went to Istanbul again. Um, before coming to UCLA, I lived in Istanbul for three years. So nice. um, I returned there, did research there at the uh, Ottoman Imperial Archives. One of the places that Avedik was a prisoner was this famous monastery. Many people know it, but but I didn't until I started this project. It's called Mont Saint-Michel. Oh, it's, yeah. uh, okay, yeah, you know well, it as well. It's Mont Saint-Michel is the one on the coast, right? That's right. Was that a dungeon? 
no, it's a it was a castle kind of like it was a very be- it's a beautiful place. Um, it's it's the one where you you can't like when the tide is up you can't walk to it, but when the tide is down you can walk to it. Oh, it's a be- I I went there. It's near Normandy. It's it's, it's like magical castle. <laughs> and because there is that tide dynamic, just yeah. as you're uh, describing, uh, for centuries it was used as a prison also. So Avitik was a prisoner there. No, he. I mean, to be honest, I mean, if you're gonna be a prisoner anywhere, it's not bad to be in Paris. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, it's and, cool. And, and it's but there's a better place he was also in prison so he's taken away from um whatever island he was on uh, so avedik was a prisoner on an ottoman island okay, oh, okay. Uh, he's set free and when he's on the sea the french diplomats conspire to kidnap him oh. so he's briefly not a prisoner and then he's a prisoner again so first he's sent to sicily briefly and then a nicer place than normandy is uh, on the mediterranean coast of france in marseille they take him there <laughs> uh, so it's not a nice Côte prison d'Azur. where he is on the Côte d'Azur, but but he is in marseille for a time then normandy then paris and then he's set free and he dies in 1711 in france they can make an entire movie about this guy just being in jail probably almost sounds like monte cristo a little bit um I mean, yeah, and there you have an Iron Mask collection. The, the, the in Bastille, right? Well, they never knew who it was, right? In the Iron Mask. So for people that don't know, there was like a um, there's a there's a lot of theories or conspiracy theories about who was behind the Iron Mask. There was some prisoner in the Bastille who, like, for no one knew, and it was uh, he was his face was covered for all the time. I mean, the, the one of the shows that I watched, which is fictional, I mean, it was based on Versailles. Their theory was it was like the the secret data of Louis the Fourteenth or something like that. But I, you're saying that they thought it was him too maybe Avedik yeah it's uh, in the late 1700s Voltaire writes about the uh, Masque de Fer the man in the iron mask and so um, it's it's a historical project people start to work on it and in trying to figure out who could this man have been uh, one of the leads is Avedik why? Because Avedik was a foreigner. He couldn't speak you French. You know, what is he doing here? It's mysterious. It makes sense for historians to have... User at the right time, right? Kind roughly. Of, yeah. And so that's actually, you put your finger on the issue, which disqualified Avedik eventually. They clarified the dates and find out that Avedik either had arrived before the man in the mask... Was mentioned the first time or something. Right, yeah. or he died before or something like this. So it definitely was not him, but for a time... And that's something that's actually built up the research on Avedik. So there is like... Armenian research on him because of the um, uh, the religious side and the Catholicism. And then there's the French research driven by uncovering the identity of the man and the iron mask. So Avedik was one of those stories that you heard that really grabbed you about this era. And then, you know, the more you looked into it, the more you discovered, the more interesting it got. So when you're doing all this research, um, does anything come to mind present day uh, based on this era? One of the things that I find important to think about is the fact that culture changes over time Mm -hmm. and that there are always people who are more culturally conservative than others who Mm -hmm. don't like the changes. Mm -hmm. And that's the story that we have here. Yeah. Another thing that often jumps out at me is the idea that the world is a complicated place. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because um, someone has a particular label that applies to them doesn't mean that they're either good or bad. Maybe it's obvious to say, but but when someone's Armenian and thinks about the Armenian past, I find that often we break away our Armenian ideas from the non-Armenian world that we know. We know that the non-Armenian world is complicated, but at least this used to be my experience uh, before um, I started really studying these things. I used to imagine... Armenian history as having gone in a very simple, straightforward way where Armenians are always victims. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's just, it's not 
the case. It's just completely we're, an inaccurate way of thinking. We're of it. people too, and everyone's got a story like this as well, um, where culture is changing. There's the conservative side of everything, and uh, I was—I mean, I personally just find all this stuff very interesting uh, on my own. But I tend to see a lot of—I uh, don't know—relevance wherever I look in history. Um, I mean, so where could someone learn more about this subject right now? Let's say even just this period. Is is it available online? So there are three sort of forthcoming, three or four forthcoming things uh, that I have in mind in order of the um, how soon they're appearing. Okay. Uh, first is Henry Shapiro's book, which is about stuff around 1600. So it's like the development of Western Ar- Armenian history as we know it. Uh, next is Sebu Aslanian's book, which focuses on book printing. Um, and it's about the contents of those books and the adventures that people have in trying to print uh, trying to get access to this like wicked new cool technology that is the printing of the book. That's so cool. Um, so that's all across uh, Eurasia, Europe and Asia. Uh, that should come out, I guess, in 2023. And then next, uh, let's guess and be hopeful, uh, Jennifer Manugian's book uh, on the history of the Armenian language, uh, which is a linguistic history. It's also social, political, uh, and um, very exciting. And there, there is going to be um, important contributions to the History of the Mukhtaris Congregation, which we were talking sense, about. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm working on a dissertation hike, which means that uh, in a year and a half, the dissertation itself will be done. And then a couple of years after that, hopefully it'll come out uh, to printed. And, and that'll be number four. So awesome. Daniel, thank you so much. This was awesome. And I wish we could talk more, uh, but next time. Thanks. Thanks. Me too, Hike. Thank you. You are listening to Hightuk Talks, the official podcast of the AYF West. I'm Haik Minasyan. And we're just a couple of Armenians talking in the world. A couple of Armenians talking in the world.